If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer, a community-powered podcast. To be honest, we need more listener donations to be able to keep this show alive because, as you can see, we no longer do product advertisements, and we really want to keep it this way because we don't want to sell you things you don't need, and more importantly, we knew we needed to shed the incentive of appealing to corporate sponsors so that we can maintain our very critical lenses and continue to question a lot of mainstream ideas and big green narratives. And if every listener chipped in just $2 a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. So join us today to be a co-creator of Green Dreamer at greendreamer.com support or at patreon.com greendreamer. Even if you could develop a machine for taking out trash cans, it's probably not worth it because that technology is probably going to be more expensive to develop and maintain than the incredibly low wages that you can pay a human being, particularly a woman of color, let's say, or an immigrant to do the same job. So there's this kind of like twinned dynamic around service work where technological stagnation leads to low wages and low wages incentivize technological stagnation. Today, we are speaking with Annie McClanahan, an assistant professor of English at UC Irvine, where she's also a faculty advisor for UCI Lifted, a prison education program. Her first book, Dead Pledges, Debt, Crisis, and 21st Century Culture, was published in 2016, and she's currently finishing a second book titled Tip Work, Gig Work, Micro Work, Culture and the Wages of Service. The first thing that happened was that I was writing a little bit about service work and in-person service work, and I was thinking a lot about tips and the history of tipping and started to do a lot of research on that and sort of thinking about the ways in which tip work relates to the problem of how do you produce what's called time discipline in service work. So we typically think of time discipline as a quality of industrial work. So think about clock punching and the sort of regulation of hours and output and measures of efficiency and productivity that come with industrialization. Service work does not work quite as well under a paradigm of time discipline because the output is often much more immeasurable 
It might be contentment or satisfaction or pleasure or care or a sense of being served with some kind of promptitude. Um, And as a result, I think service work has had to develop its own methods of wage payment that don't necessarily fall along the lines of like the hourly wage. And so I was interested in that, the sort of long histories of service workers being paid in these kind of non-hourly, non-regular, often informal or non-contractually protected ways, and thinking about the relationship between that history and the construction of the Fair Labor Standards Act, which excludes tip workers and lots of other different kinds of service workers and agricultural workers. It just was striking to me that when I was reading particularly sort of cultural studies, cultural theory type accounts of service work, there was a lot about questions of affective performance, about emotion, about the idea of being required to smile, for instance, is like a fairly common paradigm, and very little about this like regulatory and, and ultimately political history of the ways in which tip workers get excluded from legislative reforms like the Fair Labor Standards Act, get excluded from traditional models of unionization, etc., and it felt like a hole to me in the in the theory. And I mean, just to give an example, the, the text that most people turn to for thinking about effective labor, because it's one of the first sociological texts to explicitly theorize it and name it, is Arlie Hochschild's The Managed Heart, which is about flight attendants working for Delta Airlines. And her book talks about this idea of work where the product is a smile or the product is, again, the kind of customer satisfaction. And so she sort of opens it by saying, like, I'm not going to look at the things that a classical Marxist account might look at, which is to say things like the regulation of hours or the specific ways in which wages are paid, etc., And I was thinking about that because recently there's been a sort of push for greater levels of unionization among flight attendants. And one of the things that flight attendants have been asking for is to be paid their regular hourly wage for time spent boarding the plane. Because it turns out, I just discovered this fairly recently myself, that flight attendants Mm -hmm. are not actually paid for the time that they spend in the terminal. They're not paid for the time getting the plane ready. They're not paid. Their pay time basically starts once the airplane doors close. And there's a lot of work that happens before that, including a lot of very physical work, like, you know, they describe like cleaning up vomit, for instance, cleaning up trash, helping passengers get their load their bags into the racks. And so there's been this petition produced by flight attendants to try to get the airlines to be required to pay them for the time, this time that they that they are clearly working, but before the doors have closed. And I was thinking about how how interesting this was and the way that these flight attendants were describing the ways in which the bosses and the managers of these companies were stealing time from them in these little tiny increments, but these increments added up. And that's basically exactly what this sort of standard Marxist account that Hochschild opens her book with, but then sort of says, like, isn't isn't useful, talks about is this idea of like sort of stealing time in these small moments. And so I've just been thinking about how a lot of these forms of service work, because of their sort of like ephemeral or immaterial products often require these methods of wage payments and forms of discipline that are in fact like very material and tend towards hyper-exploitation and have histories that are yoked to racialization and to feminization. There's all kinds of complexities around these kinds of technical details of the labor process but we don't. We tend to look at those things when we look at industrial work, and we don't tend to look at them when we look at service work. When we look at service work, we tend to think about these questions of affect and emotion instead. So mm-hmm. I'm, I've been sort of interested in in understanding these longer histories and 
thinking about what it would mean to resituate our account of service work in light of these like aspects of the organization of the labor process and the management of the labor process and the method of wage payment, things like that. Yeah, there's lots to consider there, especially noting that we tend to or our culture tends to value the material over things that, you know, are less tangible. So I'm looking forward to unpacking this with you further throughout this conversation. As we situate ourselves in the context of the climate crisis and ecological collapse, where many are concerned about overproduction and the material limits of endless growth, I've heard some people note this rise in service work to be a good thing. So there's a possibility for us to, for example, increase jobs while exerting less strain on our lands and waters and quote unquote natural resources. And you've noted that the rise of service work cannot be understood outside the larger history of automation and technological unemployment, and that we cannot understand today's service economy without understanding this longer history one that has at least as much to do with historical, political, and economic forces as with technological change, end quote. So to set the stage for the rest of our conversation here, what about this historical backdrop do you think is important for us to keep in mind, for us to better understand the key drivers of the increase in service work, beyond perhaps too simplistically seeing it just as a good thing for economic security and the security of the health of our planet to have this trend? Yeah, thanks. That's a really great question. So, I mean, a bunch of things come to mind. So, I mean, one interesting fact is that in the mid 19th century, around the time that Marx is writing Capital, at that point, even in the sort of industrializing economies of Great Britain, the majority of the population is still not employed in industrial or manufacturing labor. The majority of the population up through the middle of the 19th century is still employed in a lot of service positions. And as a result of the rise, including a lot of in-home service, right? So people working in other people's households, basically. And as, as a result of the rise of industrialization, that starts to shift. And so one of the things that happens with the, in the 20th century is that the sort of boom of the U.S. industrial economy in particular is about the, the production of durable goods that will replace things that often used to be performed as services. So a, perfect example is washing machines, right? So you move from an economy, a late 19th, early 20th century economy, where you send your washing out to have a laundress do it, to an economy in which because of the sort of immense scaling up of technological capacity, you can produce washing machines at a price that many middle and working class folks can afford one. And as a result, you have the the middle of the 20th century, the economy is pretty much evenly divided between what's often called goods producing work and services. So goods producing work being manufacturing, as well as agriculture and extraction, and services being pretty much everything else. It's a very baggy category. It includes everything from lawyers and doctors to janitors and folks who work in fast food restaurants so uh, or Uber drivers, people who are informally employed. So it's a big category. But at the middle of the 20th century, it's pretty much evenly divided because a lot of the people that would have in the previous century been working in service jobs are now working in manufacturing. As a result of automation to a large extent and, and outsourcing as well, the globalization of supply chains and production that happens beginning in the 1950s and 1960s, particularly for workers of color who are often the first to be let go when automation starts to replace humans with machines. So starting with workers of color in the 50s and 60s, and then steadily over the course of the next few decades, as a result of automation and outsourcing, you have fewer and fewer 
people employed in that kind of goods producing work, and more and more people are thrust back into the service sector. And so as a result, like today, uh, 13% of the US economy of US jobs are goods producing and 87% are in services. The problem with that from the position of from the perspective of workers still trapped in a wage economy is that service work tends to be low waged. The reason that it tends to be low waged is, I mean, there's a lot of factors that some of them are sort of ideological. So they have to do with the feminization of labor, the ways in which jobs like, say, nursing or teaching have been associated with women's work, have been naturalized as women's work and thus devalued, historically devalued. But in addition to those to those factors, there's also a kind of technical factor, which is that most service work cannot be improved in terms of its efficiency in the same way that manufacturing can. So sure, you can get computers, you can develop computers, you can develop complicated telecommunication systems, you can have people teach their classes on Zoom, or you can have doctors do their charts on a iPad device or something, right? So you certainly have technology in this space, and it may increase productivity a bit, but it's not going to increase it by, say, a hundredfold or a thousandfold the way innovations like the assembly line increased the, the productivity of manufacturing. And so because it's what's often referred to as technologically stagnant, service work tends to be lower waged. And sometimes the relationship actually goes both ways, which is that if you think about very low wage service work like janitorial work, let's say, it's not actually worth it for a company to develop a machine to to take out trash cans, for instance, if even if they could, which is actually those kinds of manual operations are much harder to automate than we might think. But even if you could develop a machine for taking out trash cans, it's probably not worth it because that technology is probably going to be more expensive to develop and maintain than the incredibly low wages that you can pay a human being, particularly a woman of color, let's say, or an immigrant to do the same job. So there's this kind of like twinned dynamic around service work where technological stagnation leads to low wages and low wages incentivize technological stagnation. And so one of the things I'm interested in is simply this fact of low wages and the ways in which, again, in in certain subsectors of the service industry, gig work, other kinds of in-person service and leisure and hospitality, one way that, that, that those low wages get operationalized is through these rather unusual methods of wage payment, like tips, which are unusual in that they are essentially those who rely heavily on tips are being paid not by the boss or the manager or the capitalist, but being paid directly by the consumer. And so obviously that's a that's a major cost savings for the leisure and hospitality sector because it doesn't have to pay workers very much. It sort of outsources that payment to the customers themselves. And tips do other things in terms of increasing the efficiency of service workers because if you are being paid tips rather than a guaranteed wage, you don't need as much management because you're going to go as fast as you can because your wage depends on it. So these various sort of tinkerings with the method of wage payment serve as ways to sort of eke out these smaller scales of profitability from this kind of labor in the absence of technological innovation and development, such as like what you might see in, the, in, in an automated context in terms of industry. I want to go deeper into wage payments because I've no I know you focus extensively on looking at their different forms and what that might mean for workers across different sectors noting that the regulated 
hourly minimum wage legally codified in the U.S. is actually not a norm, but an exception. So to this point, what are the ethical considerations of the different structures of payment, whether hourly or piece rate or otherwise, especially in terms of what might provide more loopholes for exploitation? And then based on that, what are your perspectives on normalizing time-based wages as a way to better ensure security for different workers? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the history of this is is really fascinating. And one of the things that I have found extraordinary about it is how little attention has been paid to the construction of this category, this regulatory category called the subminimum wage. So, I mean, one of the things I'm interested in is the fact that all of these forms of contemporary service work or the forms of contemporary service work that rely on on tips and also on piece rate, which is basically payment by output, um, forms of wage payment. These are often considered older and sort of residual methods of, of payment because, again, with industrialization, when the capitalists can control the output and the efficiency simply by setting the machine at a certain speed, for instance, it's not really worth it for them to pay their workers according to performance or output. That only really becomes necessary in these contexts where you have relatively little technology so that the worker has kind of more control over their own speed. And then you have to create these kinds of methods of wage payment that essentially incentivize the worker to work as hard as they can, as fast as they can, as efficiently as they can. And so you have one of the things that I'm suggesting happens with the rise of a service sector and particularly a kind of informalized service sector like gig work, which is excluded from regulation entirely, is the kind of return of these older methods of wage payment that in some sense kind of predate industrial capitalism or are common to very early phases of industrial capitalism, but tend to get phased out. And I think the reason that that idea of a return is important is that I do think that we have, we've sort of taken for granted the idea that the particular way in which the hourly industrial wage gets codified in the US and in other developed countries in the 20th century, we tend to assume that that's a sort of norm towards which capitalism tends and a place at which it will sort of stay and rest. And that's actually not true, as it turns out, because we have, in fact, like more and more workers today are being paid some form of payment by results, which would include tips and piece rate wages and commissions and other kinds of informalized wage methods of wage payment. And in the in the underdeveloped world, you actually have a lot of regions where countries are going directly from agricultural production to a service economy and sort of skipping the phase of industrialization entirely. And as a result, in those places, you have essentially a virtually none of these kinds of regulatory structures like an hourly minimum wage. So it's really important for us to understand the history of this, the form of the hourly wage, and to think a lot about what has always been left out of it. So if you look at the history of the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is Gump's law in 1938, even at the moment that it becomes law, it only covers the rough estimates are something like 30% of workers. So it's really restricted to white male industrial workers in the northern United States. And so as a result of a bunch of legislative compromises with politicians and business interests from the South, all of these other kinds of labor, including agricultural labor, including domestic labor, and including basically the entirety of the service sector, precisely, again, because the the standard of what constitutes commerce under the Fair Labor Standards Act has to do with goods. And so mm-hmm. services are sort of perforce excluded from its regulatory coverage. Now, that's particularly interesting because if you look at the sort of movements towards the sort of labor movements towards 
creating a federal minimum wage, a lot of those movements were precisely movements among service workers. So in the early 20th century, there's a federal commission to explore what's happening at the Pullman Company. So Pullman is the major railway company of the period. It's a huge transportation is a huge sector in the early 20th century. And Pullman is the largest, the single largest employer of black men from the South. And it's actually run by Abraham Lincoln's son, Todd Lincoln, is the the sort of uh, CEO of Pullman at the time. And so he gets called into Congress to talk about their labor practices because Pullman is paying this huge group of black laborers. They're paying them mostly in tips. And so they're giving them very little in terms of a guaranteed wage. And not only that, but they're actually advertising to the traveling public that they're not paying these workers a living wage in order to induce the public to pay them tips, right? So they're trying to shift the labor burden to the customers by announcing everywhere how little they're paying their workers in order to to convince the public that they have a kind of moral responsibility to, to pay them good tips, basically. So you have this federal commission to explore tips in this context. There's another federal commission around the question of tips and red caps, who were also porters, luggage porters on on ships. And then the big case that is ultimately leads to the change in the Supreme Court's ruling on whether or not it's constitutionally okay for the federal government to create a national minimum wage is a case that involves a hotel chambermaid. Her name's Elsie Parrish, and she goes to court to demand her right to the state minimum wage that was set in her state. And as a result of the Supreme Court ruling on that case, it's possible for the Fair Labor Standards Act to pass. So the Parrish case is settled in 1937, and the FLSA is settled, is becomes law in 1938 as a result of this Supreme Court decision. And so here you have these two groups of workers, hotel uh, workers, laundresses and chambermaids on the one hand, and these transportation, mostly black transportation porters and railway workers on the other hand, both central to this fight for a federal minimum wage, central to the legal decisions around it, and yet both groups are excluded from it. Mm. And tip workers, service workers will remain completely excluded from federal minimum wage protections until the 1960s, when there's amendments to the Fair Labor Standards Act that sort of broaden its reach to include service workers and, and all kinds of other employees. It's a it's a major extension of the of the act that happens in that period. But that's the moment when they create this category called the subminimum wage. And that's uh, sometimes it's also called the tip credit wage. So in the context of service workers, what that means is that at the time, it's it's set to be a percentage of the of the regular minimum wage, a 50% of the regular minimum wage guaranteed to service workers, and then the rest of it they're supposed to earn in tips. And so the employer is supposed to keep track of how much they earn and make sure that they average out to receive the regular minimum wage. For the most part, employers don't do that. There's an awful lot of weight. There's more wage theft in the service sector than in any other sector by far, particularly among tip workers. But that's the idea. So that's the, the ruling in 1966, which is that tip workers essentially get included in the protections of labor regulation as these kind of like second class citizens alongside other groups of second class citizens, including bracero workers, so immigrant agricultural workers, including prison laborers, including disabled workers who continue to receive a subminimum wage today, folks that work for places like Goodwill, for instance, these kind of sheltered workshops. And so tip workers have this, this wage set at 50% of the federal minimum. And then in the 90s, There's another series of changes to the Fair Labor Standards Act, and there's a lot of folks pushing for the inclusion of of tip workers into the regular minimum wage coverage that doesn't succeed. And instead, what they do is they 
essentially cap it at a permanent $2.13 an hour. That's where it's capped in 1994, largely as a result of pressure from the NRA, not the National Rifle Association, but the National Restaurant Association, which is actually one of the most powerful lobbying groups in Congress. The NRA, under the direction of Herman Cain, who is then the CEO of Godfather's Pizza, pressures the Clinton administration and Congress to, to cap this tip credit wage at $2.13 an hour. And it that, that was 28, 27, 28 years ago. And it's mm-hmm. still the same rate. So it's still wow. set at $2.13 an hour. There are some states that have their own tip credit wage. Uh, California, where I'm, where I live, is among them. But about half of the states still just use that two dollars and thirteen cents an hour, and then another dozen or so of them have their own set tip credit wage that's still considerably less. Most in most states, it's under five dollars an hour. So it has a long and dark history, and I'm interested in looking at that history and thinking about that history. And then I'm also interested in the ways in which a lot of new forms of service worker organizing are are also sort of taking up this history. So there's this group that became particularly sort of visible during the pandemic is called One Fair Wage. And it's a group of service workers across all different sort of subsectors, including gig workers, including leisure and hospitality and other other folks that tend to earn tips. And so it's a group that kind of cuts across all of these different types of jobs. And the organizing is done around this question of the method of wage payment. And so I'm interested in the ways in which these activist organizations are sort of taking these histories of tips and the feminization and racialization of wage differentials and using that as a sort of basis for new forms of service worker solidarity across different employers and across different subsectors. And as we think about the relationship between technological advancement and labor, techno-optimists will often make this argument or remark that as we digitize and technologize and automate more aspects of society, it will allow people to work less hours, consequently improving our life quality and giving people more time to do the things that they actually enjoy. So what might be some of the fallacies or misunderstandings of this perspective, especially as you note that automation rarely means that robots will replace human workers with one fell swoop, and that the technological mediation of service work in part ensures that human workers continue to be precariously employed, highly efficient, and low-waged, end quote. Yeah. So, I mean, this kind of comes back to this question of like the idea that service work is technologically stagnant. and. On the one hand, I think it's really important to see that and to emphasize that in part because it gives us a sense of why it tends to be low-waged and in part because it tends to give us a sense of why an economy driven almost entirely on the service sector is not ultimately going to be a very high-growth economy. So this political economist, Jason Smith, has a really wonderful book out called Smart Machines and Service Work, where he talks about this as a problem at the ways in which service work presents a kind of problem for economic growth in the developed world and and suggests one reason why economic growth across the developed world has really slowed considerably over the last few decades in ways that ultimately will create a kind of problem or a crisis for capital accumulation. So I think in that sense, it's really important to understand the limits to the automation of service work. 
On the other hand, it's also important to understand the ways in which technology, even if it's not automating this kind of work, is doing two separate things that technology has always done to labor, including industrial labor. One of them is to de-skill it, so to break up the labor process into tinier and tinier and tinier pieces and to reduce workers' autonomy over their labor process and their ability to apply their own knowledge to the labor process. So de-skilling and then what's sometimes called sweating, a term that we get from that brings us the idea of sweatshops, right? But you have sweating outside of manufacturing as well when workers are forced to speed up to a degree that is difficult or dangerous to their bodies and when they're paid very low wages for, for doing so. So a good example of the ways in which technology contributes to de-skilling and speed up in the service sector would be Amazon warehouse workers or delivery drivers where they're using these like wearable devices to monitor every movement that they make, how fast they're doing things, whether they're taking bathroom breaks, etc. And so there you have technology that's being used not to automate them entirely because a lot of these jobs there actually isn't technology to do sort of basic things, things that we might think of as basic things like unpacking a box. It's very hard to, de- to develop a robot that can do that, it turns out. Um, and so it, w- there's still a need for these human laborers, but it's almost as if the human laborers are becoming sort of appendages of the machine. That's the language that Marx uses to describe automation because of the ways in which the technology forces them to work very fast, very hard. And in these kind of like highly sort of tailorized or sort of managed ways. And the other thing to note about the use of, of things, every, everything from a wearable device for a warehouse worker to an algorithm for a delivery driver or an Uber driver is that technology is not being used to replace the low-waged, de-skilled service worker herself. But in many cases, it is being used to reduce the need for management. And so the way that an algorithm works in in the platform economy is that an algorithm essentially allows the app itself to do all of the work of human resources and management. And it can do that work for tens of thousands of employees at a time, right? That's the way that the, the Uber app works, for instance. And so in that context, I mean, again, you don't have mass scale automation the way that you did in the, say, the automotive industry in the 1950s and 60s, but you do have increasingly less need for sort of mid, mid-level managerial positions and more need for very low-waged, de-skilled service work positions. And that, in turn, will have consequences for things like what percentage of jobs in this new service economy require a college degree. And the number is getting lower all the time. So even if you don't have that sort of large scale automation of service work, you do have the use of technology to produce these sort of smaller efficiency gains and the use of technology to automate certain aspects of the work, particularly around management. Mm. And as another example on de-skilling, I want to bring in AMT or Amazon Mechanical Turks which for our listeners who aren't familiar, it's an Amazon-owned crowdsourcing website for businesses to hire remotely, remotely located crowd workers to perform discrete on-demand tasks that computers are currently unable to do. That is according to their own framing. There's this yes and nuance that you highlight, which I would love to hear you elaborate on, which is that portraying such technology-mediated work as brainless labor as uh, Lily Irani put it, strips the workers of fully self-actualized humanity and justifies the distinction between highly exploited menial labor and higher compensated, quote unquote, creative work. 
But at the same time, it is still true that breaking up work into the smallest components of micro work, as you mentioned, makes the work experience itself more alienating, tedious and repetitive. And in short, I would add dehumanizing and health compromising because Mm. I don't think humans and our bodies are designed to do the exact same things and the same movements for hours, let alone entire work days and work weeks. So I'm just curious what you find important to add or expand on here as people often justify this form of advancement and innovation as a way to make society or business more, quote unquote, efficient. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. I mean, so one of the origins, the sort of historical origins of these crowdsourcing platforms like AMT, and there's a bunch of other ones, AMT is the biggest is temp work. And so temp work is not a new phenomenon. It, it Organizations like manpower start to become important to the US economy in the 1930s. And they provide this sort of like t- typically low-waged temporary workforce for large companies that need laborers to do work that's either completely de-skilled or largely de-skilled. So kind of basic clerical labor. And so in a, in a sense, the crowd working platforms develop out of that longer tradition of temp work, but they also mark some innovations on that model, innovations which may be good for profitability and certainly are good if you want to lower wages, but are really terrible for workers. So one thing that it does is that it de-skills it even more. And so it is, makes it possible to break up the work into, into incredibly small pieces so that like a job on Mechanical Turk might involve clicking yes if something has the color yellow in it and no if it doesn't. And so the platform allows all of these different workers' jobs to be kind of coordinated together in the same way that like a division of labor on an assembly line allows it to be, makes it possible for one person to hit a nail on the head and another person to move the thing that they're hitting the nail from, from one inch to the right and one person to put in a screw or whatever these crowdsource platforms like AMT do the same thing essentially with this kind of clerical work. And so they do that kind of de-skilling that creates a incredibly alienated experience of labor. And also, I mean, the other thing that people have pointed out in terms of this question of alienation on the crowd work platforms is that if you're a temp employee and you go to work for a company, you typically do understand what company you're working for and what the sort of larger tasks that you're involved in is. So even if you're doing something like, say, alphabetizing files, you can read those files, you can have a sense of and you know, like, okay, I'm doing I'm, you know, I'm going to this law office and I'm alphabetizing their files from old cases or something. You have some sense of what you're contributing to. AMT workers don't because the entire process is like black boxed from them by the algorithm. And so there have been a lot of cases where AMT workers have discovered after the fact that they were doing things like photo tagging, for instance, for the U.S. Defense Department towards projects to train drone warfare. And so you have a kind of moral injury that these workers are subjected to without even necessarily knowing. And it takes away the rights of workers to decide morally and ethically, like what work they are willing to do and what kind of projects they're willing to participate in. So it has really, that de-skilling has really profound effects in a lot of cases. And it also, the other thing that AMT does, sort of like the wearable devices on the Amazon workers, is that it speeds up the labor process. So when you're on AMT, your computer and the algorithm, the app is registering the speed of your clicks. It's registering how your fingers are hovering on the mouse. It's registering, in some cases, the camera will be on and it's registering your sort of physical posture and everything like that. And so, again, all of that is towards 
increasing efficiency and trying to encourage workers to produce faster. And then, of course, because AMT pays its workers by the piece, so you're paid, you're not, if there's no guaranteed wage, you're paid. And in fact, they don't even call them wages because they're so outside of regulation. They call them rewards. And so you do these, you have these sort of tasks that you take on where you're paid these quote unquote rewards per whatever the the sort of output is. And so because you're being paid only as fast as you can work, there's a sort of forced speed up that the technology enables. And then the sort of third way that the technology is important here is, again, this question of the automation of these sort of managerial positions, which certainly AMT allows for that. So you don't need the temp company, you don't need the person at the corporate firm hiring the temp company and dealing with the temp company. You don't need an HR department. That's all of that goes through the AMT algorithm and, and the platform. But also the the labor that AMT workers are doing is often used, the data that comes from AMT is used to train machine learning algorithms that are themselves oriented toward the automation of different kinds of knowledge work. So an example is transcription services, translation services, accounting. So all of these jobs dealing with numbers and language and data, those are the jobs actually these sort of often, again, sort of like mid-level paying jobs like paralegals or some or jobs like that, translators, where it's sort of mid-level work. It does tend to require a college degree or some amount of training or some amount of specialization. And that's the kind of work that's being automated out precisely through data kind of gathered and collated from these very low-waged, often globally dispersed microworkers. And so it is this very complicated circuit of low wages and minimal technological innovation on the one hand, and then automation and high levels of technological mediation on the other. Like you can't exactly separate those things out increasingly, it seems to me, in the context of this kind of knowledge work, de-skilled knowledge work in particular. Yeah, it certainly sounds like they feed into each other. And what is baffling to me is when people talk about things like productivity and efficiency, as if that should be the end goal of our society, because I question what that even means. Like, why do we care about efficiency so much and efficiency of what and for who? And then also, who does economic growth in such a broad sense of the word benefit when it masks all of these inequalities within with that broad stroke. And as you've noted, the key quote unquote innovation in this sector isn't an innovation at all, but rather a movement backward. Despite its technological mediation, de-skilled gig work relies on the kinds of piece rate or payment by result systems common to a much earlier and less technologically developed period in the history of capitalism, end quote. And for me, it's really worth unpacking what our basis is for measuring advancement or backward growth or stagnation, because I almost feel like those in political and corporate and media power, at least, have kind of been overcomplicating these social constructs, such as orienting us towards endless economic growth in order to justify something that only really benefits a few at the top. So I think about, for example, why don't we just center ourselves on lowering stress and anxiety, lowering chronic illnesses, improving people's senses of belonging and community and life satisfaction and health, increasing biodiversity and so forth. So instead of using some broad and 
constructed and disassociated measurement to supposedly indicate advancement, why don't we just focus on our health and quality of life itself? Mm -hmm. At least that's what I hope we orient growth and advancement towards. Kind of a long ramble, but I'm curious to see where else you might take (laughs) us here. Absolutely. No, I think that's totally right. And I mean, you know, the, the problem of wage stagnation in the US economy is is no small thing. And I mean, it's a problem even from the perspective of people who want economic growth, because the fact is, is that if wages are stagnant, and then there's lots of kinds of consumption that are presumed to be part of American working and middle class experience that become unavailable. So if you have an economy, for instance, where the majority of people are working in jobs for which a college degree is not required, but they are taking on those college degrees, right? As they, as, as there's more demand than ever for higher education, even though these jobs are changing all the time, then the folks who are working in these jobs where they're being paid less than the college degree that they ostensibly, the the college degree that they earned ostensibly trained them for, then they're not going to be going out and buying a house or buying a car. And in fact, this is part of the sort of discourse around like the fact that like millennials and zillennials are doing a lot less of taking on a lot less of that kind of consumer debt. So it, it does produce a kind of potential crisis, even for theories of economic growth, let alone for the sort of well-being or vitality or sort of sustainability of the individual workers themselves. I mean, the other thing that's interesting to me is that, you know, if you think about this question of technological stagnation and these jobs where it's been very hard to automate, a lot of them are jobs in industries similar to the industry that I'm in, which is education, right? So often teaching is given as a sort of primary example of this kind of technological stagnation, which is that Again, I can use a computer to speed up my teaching process or my or develop curriculum or whatever, but I can't increase it at this like sort of massive level. But one of the things that's been happening as a result of the experiments in online education that have come out of the pandemic is that I do think that there's more and more interest among both universities and capital in trying to automate more aspects of education and a lot of eagerness even among people that from my perspective ought to know better like some of my some of the, my coworkers at the university in sort of thinking about like well what are the affordances of this technology and how can we use it to to essentially teach teach more students and the idea that that would be a solution to the sort of crisis of access to higher education is just it's just astonishing to me. It seems to me so important that we preserve these few aspects of social interaction and engagement left in our lives that are not mediated by computers and devices. And so, yes, is it good to have opportunities for something like telehealth for folks who don't have access to doctors or, you know, maybe uh, options for people who, who, for whatever reason, need to rely on online learning for education, like as a solution to the problem of access in small scale, I think that's fine. But on the larger scale, I just very, I'm very worried about what it does, both as a sort of matter of labor, I think it's a, ultimately, it can be a form of it will be a form of automation, even in these sectors that people used to think couldn't be automated, like my own. But I also just worry about it as a sort of matter of, again, sort of social interaction engagement. It's incredibly important to me to be in person in a room with my students as much as possible. And that's a value that seems so self-evident to me, but I think is under some amount of threat right now. Mm. And a broader question I have and that I'm pondering is whether automation and digitization itself 
generally in terms of the productivity and deliverables, ends up inevitably accelerating the increase in our economic disparities and socio-ecological injustices. Because given the impossibility of endless capital accumulation and endless material growth, doesn't automation, given the current incentives at least, just lead us to accelerating ourselves towards collapse and self-destruction? Or maybe I'm just too cynical about its potential to actually Mm -hmm. translate into improvements in our collective well-being and feelings of being valued for our full humanity? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's really, it's really complicated. I mean, in the, in the 20th century, there were lots of folks, particularly up through the, about the 1970s or so, who saw the possibilities for automation as a kind of form of human liberation from work. I mean, because in a, in an ideal world, the creation of more efficient machines means that we don't work more, we work less, right? And so ideally, mechanization would have led to a decrease in the working day. And so, you know, as recently as I I just was teaching to my students the other day, this amazing text from the 1960s by this Black auto worker in Detroit, Black auto worker and activist James Boggs has this book called American Revolution, where he's writing about his experiences as a factory worker. And he has this image of this idea that we would have these machines that would be so productive that, again, they would sort of liberate us from the demand to work 40, 50, 60 hours a week and produce a world in which we could sort of fulfill our human potential and our human capacities in all these different ways. And it's a really sort of wonderful utopian account, but he himself acknowledges that that is what mechanization would do in a system where we hadn't decided that that the ability to reproduce oneself and to survive and to subsist would have to be dependent on the wage. And so under a capitalist system of production or any system of production based on based on the extraction of value via the wage, it's always going to be the case that the mechanization leads to more work and lower wages. And so this sort of possibility of this other version of the automation tendency becomes impossible precisely because of capitalism's the ways in which capitalism extracts value. I also think that the other thing that 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 is not available or not obvious to somebody writing about these questions in the 1960s, but that is clear now, is that the other side of automation and mechanization is the ecological catastrophe, right? So if you think about the sort of ecological impact of even something like that seems so material, immaterial, like a like a server farm, for instance, that is the place where all the data from these platforms and apps are stored, right, and processed the ecological and energy impacts of those are really significant. And so I think the thing that's not as clear in the 1960s is that that, that's another limit to the capacities of of automation and mechanization to liberate us is that insofar as these machines still depend on the the kinds of energy and fuels that are unsustainable and limited, that, that they will never be a solution to the sort of human catastrophe of capitalism because they will only cause climate change and resource extraction to speed up. Uh, Lots more to think about, but we are nearing the end of our conversation together. So in terms of looking at our path forward, you share whether we are talking about insecure work or technological unemployment, about low-wage work or no work at all, we are reminded that if we are to persist, it will have to be in a world in which neither one's livelihood nor one's life depends on access to the wage, end quote. In a culture that assigns such a high level of importance and value to the very idea of jobs for people to earn a living, 
and also entire educational systems designed to train people in, into thinking that this is the way that things have to work and to funnel people into this system. What do you want to invite us to rethink or to challenge? And what are some of your dreams and visions for how we might be able to organize and care for ourselves and our communities beyond being tethered to the wage? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I find really powerful about thinking about these longer histories of service work, I mean, one thing is, is like looking back to forms of labor organizing, and also just sort of solidarity, social solidarity, and and being in common among those whose access to subsistence is is mediated by the wage that have not been sort of highlighted as traditional parts of the workers movement. So everything from, you know, the work of uh, African American laundry workers in the South in the late 19th century to these immigrant women working in hotels in the early 20th century to the long history of waitress unions that historians have written really powerfully about. They're also excluded from the sort of traditional industrial unions. And so I think looking at these longer histories of the ways in which, you know, folks who, whether they're unemployed or underemployed or part of a surplus population or part of the service sector or part of the informal sector, the way that they all sort of live the same crisis, which is separation from the means to reproduce themselves. And I think insofar as we can find ways to think about strategies for combining the struggles of all of these groups of people together, whether it's you know waitresses or Uber drivers or sex workers, through these new kinds of strategy of resistance and these new forms of militancy and, and new forms of knowledge production, I think there's a lot of possibilities there for sort of dispensing with older forms that have may become superannuated and, and finding revolutionary new forms of being in common against the exploitation of the wage and against the sort of regime of property. Break your heart, I know, no matter if it's true. So kindly think upon this day, the day you said I do. The light came through the windows there, the eyes were wet with love. As you held your hands as one, what were you thinking of? Oh, come the drought and come the rain. What has been an impactful book that you've read or publication that you follow? So I'm really obsessed right now with the genre of the workers inquiry, which is a type of writing that's written by workers themselves. And mm -hmm. a lot of folks have been doing really great work in this regard, particularly gig work uh, around gig workers. And so the publication Notes from Below has been producing a lot of really wonderful workers inquiries from Amazon workers and delivery drivers and logistics workers. And I'm really, I'm really excited by this as a genre of knowledge production. 
What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? Oh, that's a great question. Let's see. So one thing that comes immediately to mind is that there's a quote that I almost always put on my syllabi when I'm teaching theory classes or political economy classes. And it comes from the scholar Chris Nealon. And he writes, the volatility born of the contradictions in capital might better point to a different earlier understanding of theory as the relentless surveying of grounds for solidarity among those for whom the regime of capital only spells suffering. And I just love that image of the relentless surveying of possible grounds for solidarity. It seems to me that that is what the theory that I love the best does and the theory that I write tries to do. Mm. And what is your biggest source of inspiration at the moment? Oh, probably my students. Um, I always feel a bit, it feels a bit obvious to say that, but it really is the most, the most powerful part of what I do on a daily basis. I've long been interested in pushing back against the idea that young people are somehow subject to uh, these kind of ideological mystifications around everything from their student debt to their economic outlooks. And so I have my students read workers' inquiries like the sort that I was describing a minute ago and also write them about their own job experiences. And I find them to be incredibly intelligent and canny and clear-eyed about what their jobs are like and what they what needs to be different. And And so on these questions of work in particular, I find young people right now are really engaged and aware and thoughtful and critical. And it's one of the things that gives me the most hope. Mm. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close, but be sure to check out Annie's book, Dead Pledges, Debt Crisis and 21st Century Culture, which was published in 2016. And also keep an eye out for her book that she's currently finishing titled Tip Work, Gig Work, Microwork, Culture, and the Wages of Service. We will also link to Annie's socials in our show notes as well at greendreamer.com. Annie, thank you so much. We appreciate you. And thank you so much for sharing your immense wealth of knowledge here with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? We have to find a world without wages. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. And to be honest, we cannot keep the show going without more direct support. So if you value independent media and critical conversations like this, you can help to sustain and co-create the future of this show with a donation of any amount at greendreamer.com support or at patreon.com greendreamer. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us out so, so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Calliopeia Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Come the Rain by Maggie Clifford. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>